Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. So we continue our study through this great book. Today we want to consider the question, what should you expect from your pastor? What is the pastor's role? What, what should be his focus? In other words, what should you expect and demand from me? Now, there are a lot of opinions on this matter as you look around churches today. Uh, some view the pastorate like a chief administrator. His role is just to administrate everything in the church, make sure it's running like a top, and that's his job. Make sure all the various ministries are organized. Uh, some view the pastor like a visitation guru. He just spends all day every day uh, visiting. He visits the hospitals and he visits uh, the people in their homes and he visits uh, people in the community and he just spends all day visiting. Uh, some view the pastor like a jack of all trades. He just does a little bit of everything. He maintains the buildings and he maintains the, the vehicles and he takes care of all the programs and he uh, makes, maintains the various church contracts. And, and in the middle of that, he needs to make sure he entertains all the members. Right? And that's kind of his role. Uh, some view the pastorate like an events planner. His job is just to plan a whole lot of different events for everybody to enjoy. Uh, some view him like a concert planner. He just has to create a wonderful concert every Sunday for everybody to come enjoy. Um, sadly, some pastors view the pastorate uh, like an extended vacation. They're just going to do as little as possible. That's what they're going to do. Well, as we look at Scripture, we discover that none of these are actually accurate. None of these are what the priority should be or what should be expected of them. When we consider the priority of the pastor, there are a lot of different texts in Scripture we should consider and think about. Some like 1 Peter 5, where the pastor is uh, commanded to shepherd the flock of God and exercise oversight over it. As you consider these things, though, there are two texts that definitely we should come to mind and think about and that are found in 2 Timothy. One we will look at today, and the other is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Each of these texts reveal that the priority, the purpose, the goal of the pastor is the discipleship of the church through the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And as we work through the text today, uh, the message should serve really as informative to you. There'll be some areas of conviction, I'm sure, but informative to you and convicting to me. It should help you know what to demand and what to expect from me as your pastor and what I ought to be doing. Let's read our text together this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse number 14. Paul writes, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What should you expect from your pastor? 
What is the pastor's role? What is his focus? Well, the answer is to be discipled through the faithful teaching and preaching of God's Word. And our text today presents this reality through three important commands to the pastor. The first command is to protect the flock. Verse 14, remind them of these things, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. See, the pastor is to protect the flock of God from attacks by Satan and the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that the pastor is the gift, the teacher to the church to equip it for ministry. And part of that equipping is providing the tools to protect from false teaching and foolish thinking. So we see in this text, this is done in two ways. He says, first, remind them Of these things. The word remind is the first of the three imperatives or commands in this text. It's to call to their remembrance these things. Now, the question we have to ask, of course, of the text is what are these things? That were to bring to mind. And as you look at various books or studies about this, there are a lot of viewpoints on this. Perhaps uh, everything that he has talked about in the book so far. Perhaps just chapter 2, the things he's covered up to this point. As I look at it and look at the commands that have been given and what's been stated so far, there's one section in particular that applies specifically to the church as a whole. And it's verses 11 through 13. The promises made to the church that readily apply to the church. He says, it's the true and trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We spent significant time last week talking about those promises. So with this in mind then, the pastor is to consistently remind the church of God's promises And his expectations. We must come to Christ in salvation. And die to ourselves daily. So that we can live with God. We have to endure suffering. Understanding that we will reign with Christ. His promises are sure. We're to warn the Christians. That if you deny God. If you turn your back on him. You are not one of his. But God is faithful to those who sin and does offer forgiveness because he cannot deny himself. And these promises and these warnings really sum up Scripture itself. So we could say that the pastor's task is to continually remind the church of the word, to preach the word, to preach the truth, to preach sound doctrine. And it's to be done over and over, a continual reminder so that you won't forget or to remind the church of God's promises. Secondly, he says they're to instruct them regarding false teaching. He says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Again, he says to charge them. There's a seriousness to that phrase. It's a solemn charge. It carries the idea of a stern warning. Warn them not to argue, to quarrel about words. The the pastor is to guard the flock of God 
by warning them, by instructing them and, and rebuking them about false teaching. It's a sober but an important task because of the danger that false teaching presents. He says this not to quarrel about words, but he also says that this is to be done before the Lord. Warn them, charge them before the Lord. It's a warning that this is not something that the pastor's bringing on his own, but he's representing God in the situation. Now that's important to remember. It's vital to remember. Because every pastor who faithfully fulfills his ministry has stories about congregants who have misused Scripture. They followed false teaching or brought bad philosophy or bought into it. And when confronted, the congregant dismissed the pastor's warning and authority and in the end shipwrecked their faith. And Paul includes this command because the pastor is not just another ordinary Christian when it comes, when he comes with rebuke from scripture about your handling of the text or your buying into the philosophies of this world. When you dismiss it as simply disagreeing or on interpretation, you're actually undermining your very accountability with God. Your pastor has devoted his life to the very study and ministry of the word, and he answers to God for your soul. So when he confronts you about these things, you'd be wise to heed it. Because he's not coming on his own authority. Frankly, he probably doesn't want to come at all. But he's coming under the authority as a representative of God himself. And this warning is to instruct the congregation not to buy into false Teaching. Paul uses a phrase we've heard before. We saw it back in 1 Timothy. Quarrel about words. It's really two words that Paul puts together that mean word wars. Not to wage a word war. It means to argue or quarrel about the meaning and use of words. We saw in 1 Timothy 6.4, it says he's puffed up. The false teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. See, the pastor is to warn the church about waging a war of words which are not based in or founded in the word of God. These false teachers are later described here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The pastor is to rebuke those using human wisdom and reasoning to undermine God's word. To remind believers not to debate with them, but simply to ignore them. Not even give them the time of day. Because these debates accomplish nothing of value. It says they do no good. They're useful to no one. In fact, they ruin the people who hear. The word ruin is an interesting word. It's the Greek word catastrophe. It means to overturn, to subvert, to demoralize, literally to cause a catastrophe in their life. When people inside the church waste time arguing and buying into false teaching, it results in spiritual shipwreck. But even worse, even more seriously, it ruins, it brings about catastrophe in those who are listening to the argument. See, the primary focus of the pastor is to disciple through the faithful preaching and teaching of the word. And that looks like protecting the flock 
through reminding them of God's word and the promises there and warning them about departure and false handling of God's word. To that extent, then, the second command to the pastor is to present yourself approved. He says in verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Begins by saying, do your best. That's the second command or imperative there. Give diligence or persistent zeal to showing yourself approved. And in fact, we all probably from a one and know the King James translation of that, right? Study to show yourself approved. But really, that's it's kind of a misleading translation in today's English because it means more than simply thinking about it, studying it out. It means to have a passionate zeal about something. What is he supposed to have passionate zeal about? Presenting himself approved before God. Where approved is the idea of approval after examination or testing. Those who are approved, tried and true, who've been tested like like coins or, or medals and passed the test, recognized as valid. The pastor is to take pains to present himself before God as one who's been tested and found genuine. Why would he want to do this? Well, the reason is so that there'll be no shame. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now, this description of the pastor is important. The pastor is called a worker. Throughout the New Testament, the pastor is called a worker. He's to be a worker who has no need for shame. Specifically, no need for shame in the quality and the production of his work. The commentator Guthrie says, A workman who does not need to be ashamed must therefore be understood in the sense of a Christian teacher who can unblushingly submit his work for God's approval, like the men in the peril of the talents who had gained other talents. John MacArthur says the supreme purpose of the diligent and selfless teacher is to please God. Think of Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The pastor's motive and goal is to present himself before God as a worker without shame. How does he do this? Well, the method is to rightly handle God's word. Rightly handling the word of truth. The kind of work that the Christian workman, the pastor does, is teaching and preaching. He's been called to handle the word of truth. The idea of rightly handling is an interesting word. It means to to cut along a straight line or to cut a straight road. It came to mean to handle something rightly. In fact, the noun form of this word came to become the English word orthodoxy, correct belief. These ideas of cutting a straight line or road underscore the need for the pastor to have straightness of speech. As opposed to inadequate or arcane or deceptive speech. And correctness of meaning when preaching the word. To rightly handle the word of truth is to handle it with the intended meaning of the original author. To say what it actually means. One commentator put it this way. 
The man who handles the word of truth properly does not change, pervert, mutilate, or distort it. Neither does he use it with a wrong purpose in mind. On the contrary, he prayerfully interprets Scripture in light of Scripture. He courageously yet lovingly applies its glorious meaning to concrete conditions and circumstances, doing this for the glory of God, the conversion of sinners, and the edification of believers. You see, the pastor who ignores, misrepresents, misinterprets or detracts from God's truth by adding to it or taking away from it has a reason to be ashamed. When the pastor incorrectly handles the word, whether consciously or not, he corrupts and denigrates God's truth. And actually, he's following the pattern of Satan. That's what Satan himself does. He uses God's word, but uses it wrongly. This is the method of Satan. So we must remember that he is handling the very word of truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. One other important note must be made here. The pastor is to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This means that the man, the pastor, must do the work of study himself. Right now in the Southern Baptist Convention, there is a controversy and broiling because the president of the convention has been found to be plagiarizing messages, something that our own church has felt in the past. But this text tells us that he is to study the word himself, to prepare his own messages and lessons. He's not called to do the work of other men, but to do his own work. Any pastor who plagiarizes other men's messages has no place in the pulpit. He's disqualified himself from ministry. He has demonstrated himself as a worker who ought to be ashamed. He's violated the command of God not to steal and not to bear false witness. He's turned his back on his calling to shepherd the flock of God and has demonstrated himself to be a worthless, lazy, inept, workman. And he has no place here. The pastor's priority is to labor in the word of God so that he rightly handles God's word for the growth of God's people. The third thing that the pastor is to do is to avoid foolish debates. Verses 16 to 19. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He's to avoid foolish debate. Avoid irreverent babble. The word avoid is that third imperative command in this text. It means to shun, to turn your back on. 
What is he to turn his back on? To shun irreverent Babel. The word irreverent means everything that is profane or common. Babel is empty or vain talking. It pictures these arguments as aimless or empty. We've seen already in 1 Timothy what was going on there in Ephesus that Paul is talking about when he talks about empty, foolish debates. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, again, he says he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. For chapter 1 Timothy 1, verse 6 says, Certain persons swerving from these, the truths of God's word, have wandered away into vain discussions. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself to godliness. At the end of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20, he said, O Timothy, guard the deposit, the word of God entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. In other words, the pastor must not allow any opportunity to engage in these foolish disputes. Because there's intrinsic danger in participating in these foolish debates. What is this danger? He says it will lead, verse 16, many people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. The first danger of these unbiblical debates is that it leads people away from God. The advocating of the unbiblical position, uh, those advocating that, think that they're progressive, they're, they're knowledgeable, they're advancing spirituality. But in reality, the only place they're advancing in is in ungodliness. Engaging in these debates and giving platform to these debates leads progressively away from God and towards destruction. The second danger of these unbiblical debates is that it spreads infection in the church. It says their talk will spread like gangrene. The term translated here as gangrene was used of, of cancer as well as of gangrene. What is gangrene? Well, it's a disease which bacteria enters into a wound and it begins to actually destroy and eat away at the flesh and spread out. The only way to deal with gangrene is to amputate the part that is infected, lest it infect the entire body. In the same way, if a false teacher or false doctrine or wrong interpretation of Scripture is allowed to enter, the corrupting doctrine will spread from that opening. And the word translated spread actually means to pasture, like, like cows or sheep in the pasture just moving through and eating out the entire pasture. So the false belief will find pasture in the heart of the congregation and will feed on it among the unspiritual and the unsuspecting. And when a doctor discovers cancer or gangrene, they don't just ignore it. Well, good luck with that. Right? They immediately treat it. They immediately work on it, seek to cut it out and remove it because they take these extreme measures because the life of the body is at stake. So the pastor, when confronting false teaching in the body, does not engage in debate, but decisively and authoritatively rebukes it and ends the debates because the health of the body is at stake. We see an example of this. He says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, 
who've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Now, this is most likely the same Hymenaeus that's mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And even though he had been rebuked and evidently removed from the church, some ignorant and foolish members were still listening to him. And now, along with a man named Philetus, he was teaching that the resurrection from the dead had already happened and they'd missed it. Sorry, all that remains for you now is just some kind of spiritual resurrection. You, you don't get anything other than that. And that's no smaller significant claim because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul showed that a denial of the possibility of the resurrection actually jettisoned the gospel. It brought the credibility of the word of God into question and it robs believers of an incentive for sacrifice and service. If there's no resurrection from the dead, if there's nothing after this, then what's the point? In fact, he goes on to say that if there is no resurrection of the dead, we're actually of all men most miserable, most to be pitied. Interestingly enough, this same heresy is taught by Jehovah's Witnesses today. When they knock on your door and try and talk to you, this is what they're going to teach. It serves as an example to show that these arguments are those which seek to twist Scripture to say what the debater wants it to say. They don't stick with the author's intended meaning, but with, with their meaning, what they want the text to say. The pastor is not to engage in a drawn-out debate with these individuals. He's to rebuke it and leave it. For as we saw in 1 Timothy, one cannot debate with the ignorant when this individual is drawing upon human reason and not on Scripture, the debate will go nowhere but only confuse and destroy those who are listening. Instead, the pastor is better served, as we saw at the beginning of the message, warning those who have not yet been drawn into the heresy. But even though these threats to the body are ever-present, the pastor is to take heart. For there is an unending promise from God. Verse 19, But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal the lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the lord depart from iniquity what is this foundation it is the church itself it's generally understood to be the church the foundation consisting of christ himself and his body the church established upon the bedrock of God's predestined love and his well-founded building matthew 16:18 he tells peter on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And God has ensured this promise with a seal. He says he has put a seal on it. It bears this seal, the seal by which believers are sealed, protects and indicates ownership and it certifies them as God's. It's the picture of a seal on the side of a building. We see it today on the side of government buildings, things like that. They, they signify, they show the purpose and the ownership and the authority of that building. And on the seal placed on the church are two statements. A statement of promise and a statement of command. And both statements come from number 16, the incident where Korah actually rebelled against the authority, the uh, leadership of Moses. The first statement of promise, the Lord knows who are his, comes from Numbers 16, verse 5. Moses says, he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and who will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near. 
In this situation, Korah and his children, they'd had enough of Moses. They'd had enough of this wilderness. They'd had enough of Moses saying he was speaking on behalf of God. And they challenged him. Said, we'll take authority. Moses, you're out. We're in charge. And Moses' response was to go to God in prayer. And God revealed what he would do. And so he told Korah and his sons, tomorrow morning, God's going to show. He's going to reveal because God knows whose are his. And what happened? Well, the next morning, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his family. Because God knows who are his. And he will preserve them. But those who are not his will experience judgment. So we must ensure that we are aligned with God. We must ensure that we are handling the word of God correctly. And we can take refuge in the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. God has called us. And he knows us. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Neither will any man pluck them out of my hand. He's known us from all eternity. God the Son owns us. He bought us with His precious blood. God the Holy Spirit seals us and certifies that indeed we are the sons of God and God the Father adopts us into His family. The second statement on the seal is a command. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. As Moses addressed the rest of the children of Israel, they're debating who do we follow, Moses or Korah. He commanded that all who were with God should distance themselves from Korah because God was about to judge them. Number 1626. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. And indeed God swept them away. Number 16 informs us that the earth opened up and swallowed those rebellious people. The principle is that the believers are to depart from iniquity. We are the children of God. So the pastor's priority is not to create some entertainment venue. It's not to create a fantastic concert every Sunday, but rather to disciple the church through the faithful proclamation of the word of God. And this includes the exhortations to remove yourself from following the world and to value the things of God. Commands like 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what's a pastor's priority? To faithfully proclaim the word of God through reminding you of God's promises, working hard in his study and handling of the word, and avoiding and rebuking false teaching that creeps into the church. What should you demand of me? What should you expect? You should demand hard work in my study so that I can show myself approved to God, a worker who has no need for shame in the way that I handle the word. Let me conclude with a lengthy charge from a man named Floyd Dowd Schaefer. This is the charge of what you should do. Make him a minister of the word. 
But what does that mean? Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, the study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books. Get him all kinds of books. And his typewriter. It's a little aged. And his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before the text. Broken hearts and the flippant lives of the superficial flock. And the holy God. Throw him into the ring to box with God till he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through. Let him come out only when he is bruised and beaten into a blessing. Set a time clock on him that will imprison him with thought and writing about God for 40 hours a week. Shut his garrulous mouth forever spouting remarks and stop his tongue to have something to say before he dare break silence. Require him to have something to say. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Fire him from the PTA and cancel his country club membership. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him engage his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Refuse his glad hand and put water in the gas tank of his community buggy. Keep him a Bible and tie him to his pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, and examine him. Humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. And shame him for his glib comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Scorn his insipid morality. Refuse his supine intelligence. Ignore his broad-mindedness, which is only flat-headedness. And compel him to be a minister of the word. If he wants to be gracious, challenge him rather to be a product of the rough grace of God. If he dotes on being pleasing, demand that he please God and not man. If he wants to be unctuous, have great speech, ask him to make sounds with a tongue on which a holy flame has rested. If he wants to be a manager, insist rather that he be a mannequin for God, a being who is illustrative of the purpose and will of God. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. When at long last he dares essay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him and tell him you can read the morning paper, digest the television commentaries, think through the day's superficial problems, manage the community's myriad drives, and bless assorted baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he has read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom. And give him no escape until he is backed against the wall of the word. Then sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, 
But give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, suffer with it, and come at last to speak it backwards and forwards until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. The priority of the pastor is to disciple the church through the faithful proclamation of the word of God. Father, we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity to gather together, to fellowship with one another, to learn from your word that we might walk closer with you. Lord, I ask that you would help me to fulfill my role, to faithfully, authoritatively, and rightly handle the word of God, that your people might grow to believe that it is profitable for doctrine and reproof for correction and instruction in righteousness, that we might grow up into a body fitly joined together to glorify you in everything we say and do. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.